Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I, just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and we've got a good one for you. In fact, John and I both thought that this is one of our best episodes in a long time, and no thanks to me. Honestly, it's it's all our guest this week, and his ability to really take these topics that we're talking about, this content distill it into what matters and provide value. And so I'm just getting straight into it. This week, we had the opportunity to speak with Steve McKee, president and co-founder of McKee Wallwork and Company, an integrated marketing firm that specializes in revitalizing stalled, stuck, and stale brands. You know, we've had marketing folks and branding folks on the show, not all the time, but we've had them in the past. But for some reason, there's something about this one that makes it different. I feel like no matter what you do or who you are, you can take some real insight away from this that you can apply to your life as an entrepreneur, as an artist, as a business person, or just a creative into the world. When Steve co-founded McKee Wallwork and Company, he set out to create a company that was the world leader in turning around stalled brands. And he talks about it more in the episode, but how pertinent is that today? How many times do we feel stalled in our lives or in our companies and our creative endeavors? Well, Steve gives us the step-by-step way to really look at what it is we want to build or who it is we want to be and how to turn that around. Steve has more than three decades experience coaching troubled brands as they look to better position themselves for success. He writes a monthly column for Smart Brief on leadership that I absolutely recommend checking out. There's some brilliant articles in there. He's appeared all over TV and he speaks everywhere. Trust me, his resume is up to par. You'll hear about two books that Steve wrote, although he doesn't really promote them in this episode. It's just you can tell the books are a deeper dive into what we talk about. And those books are Power Branding, Leveraging the Success of the World's Best Brands, as well as his other book, When Growth Stalls, How It Happens, Why You're Stuck, and What to Do About It. If you feel as passionate about this episode and this topic as we do, reach out to us. 
smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. You can find us on the interwebs at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Don't forget to use that Amazon link for your Christmas shopping, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Let's get on with it. Here it is, Steve McKee on branding, growth, getting unstuck, and much more. Enjoy. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm thrilled to be here. Really a blast. In today's world where everyone is trying to own a brand, be a brand, lifestyle brands and all this stuff, I feel like you're the equivalent of Yoda. Like you should, you, do you have all the answers to all the keys to the kingdom? There are no keys. Only try. <laughs> what would Yoda say? I don't know. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. We have a lot, we have, I mean, power branding, my, my book has 75 power branding principles. They're short. Um, and it sounds simple, just follow them. But of course, that's where it gets difficult. <laughs> right. Right off the bat, here's the struggle that I've always found. And in a previous life, I was head of marketing at a nonprofit. It was a startup and we were growing, but there's so much information and there's mm. so much opportunity that I had to just say, okay. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to try a few things. But for someone like you, who is the expert, do you ever feel overwhelmed on trying to keep up with everything? Or maybe you're making the wrong decision for a client? Yes and no. Of course, I was going to say that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I say yes, simply from the standpoint of there's new tactics invented every day, right? There, we're, we're just inundated with new opportunities for new ways of marketing. And you see somebody doing something and you think, should I be doing that? And so from that standpoint, yeah, it's it's a continual state of intimidation these days. But honestly, no, because there are certain fundamental principles that never change. And most of what we do with our clients is bring them back to first things and and follow those first principles. And it's not until actually the fourth stage of following those principles that you even that you even look at tactics. Uh, so often where so many brands go wrong is they let tactics the, the tactics tail wag the dog, if you will, wag the strategic dog. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, most of the time what we provide our clients is uh, guidance, uh, structure, hope, and again, return them to first things. And it's a very calming thing. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. You get to be the one weathering the storm. Well, I think that that's a great kind of lead in. I want to get into those first principles and that'll keep people hooked for a little bit. But I listened to a little bit about your story and your company and leaving the, the large marketing firms you worked at and starting your own. I'd be really interested to to go back to kind of where you began and discuss, yeah. have you always been a creative? What is it that kind of stokes you and how did you find it? Oh, I, I stumbled into it is the truth. Like so many of us do. I actually, I, I talked my way into, the, into my first job in the business. And as it turned out, that's why I was suited for the business. My boss later told me that there were people more qualified than I was, but because I bluffed my way through, <laughs> um, they thought this guy took a chance on us. We'll take a chance on him. And I can tell you that story if you want. But the thing that makes what I do for a living so glorious is it's in that word creativity. You know, we were created in God's image. We're created and he's a creator. So we are created to be creative. And that's why I believe that whenever we create, whether we're making a pie or a, an ad campaign or building a company or you name it, there's this sense of satisfaction, you know, when you create something, a real sense of deep-seated satisfaction. And what's so awesome about my job is I get that almost every day because, some, you know, sometimes we'll create really big sweeping brand platforms. That doesn't happen every day. But every day there's something. There's a – there's a even, you know, if you want to look at it this way, a memo to write or an article to pen um, or even a meeting to run. I don't want to get silly with it, but if you do something well – if you create something, it's very satisfying. And I just love that about my job. Do you ever find it difficult to continue creating? I mean, knowing every day your goal is to go to bed and have put something new somehow, somewhere into the world. I know I've done similar things and it 
if your mindset's not right, sometimes I feel like it's a burden more than a gift. Well, that's absolutely true. We learned that the hard way when, um, you know, the, the early history of our company, we stalled and really struggled with that. And um, one of the things I discovered was when you're discouraged, it's very hard to be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also hard to be creative when you're under pressure, intense pressure. And, and, and that's true. But to your question of do I ever tire of it? No, not at all. Mm. It's it's the joy. It's, um, you know, when you when you when you if you've ever faced the pressure of having to come up with an ad or a headline in two hours, that's pretty intense. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but there are methods you can use to do that. And if you're good at it, you do the best you can with what you got. And, um, you know, you don't sweat it. But, no, every day is a new day. It's, an, you know, the sunrise is new every day. The sunset is new every day. And every day is an opportunity to be more creative. And, in fact, you know, one definition of creativity is combining two previously unrelated ideas. So the older we all get and the more we take in, um, the more curious we are, the more raw materials we have in our minds. And it's fun to see how those things are going to collide and create new ideas. Mm. You touched on something there that I had actually noted because I have found this to be the case. So there's a lot of science behind this idea of when you're fearful, the the creative part of your brain essentially shuts down. And I know a previous guest of ours, someone I follow all the time, Simon Sinek, really talks a lot about creating a work environment that is not fearful. And what I've found is that oftentimes work environments are petri dishes for fear because it's <laughs> it's you know you're not making enough money you are easily replaceable you don't have the requirements we don't have the ability to train you the economy's this our bottom line's this owning your own firm and running it how have you been able to balance the tumultuous economic environment that I feel like Mm. we've lived in for quite some time and the ability to be creative and enjoy it along the way instead of worrying about the bottom line and the next dollar and the next client. Yeah. You know, um, that's a really insightful question and it's not easy, but, um, a couple, a couple of ways of answering it. One is we learn to compartmentalize. You, you, you do have to be able to compartmentalize and set aside the fact that your house is underwater, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or the clients breathing down your neck. You, You have to be able to, to compartmentalize, but, but most importantly, we are very intentional here at our firm about creating a positive work environment. In fact, that is priority number one, because we recognize that when you're, um, when you're, when you're, you're feeling, you know, sweat on the back of your neck, um, because of circumstances, you're not going to be creative and it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we are very intentional about our, our workplace physically. We're very intentional about our culture. We're very intentional about our priorities. Uh, We don't, you know, we're not a a slave drivers here uh, because we want people to come in and be able to breathe deeply, uh, exhale freely and, you know, create accordingly. It's just, and, you know, that's what I do as president of the company. That's my job to set that kind of environment. Mm. But it's every individual's job in their own circumstances to do that as best they can. I know the ad industry and the marketing industry in general can be known as that, as you mentioned, that slave driving mentality. And I'm sure you've probably worked in those environments. What have you put in place at your company that you feel works or what have you seen others do that you feel works to really foster the creative environment? You know, it's, you you really have to set it from, from the get go. We, 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 we're an anomaly in our business because we, put family first, families first, and that goes for everybody. And so, you know, there are those times when you have to pull an all-nighter and, you know, we all have that situation. But as a rule, we believe that our people should have dinner with their families and coach their kids' little league teams uh, or, you know, whatever the equivalent of that is for them. And that, in, in order to be able to do that, our our profit margins have to be set up accordingly, which means our pricing has to be set up accordingly, which means our business model has to be set up accordingly. So it really is intentional. And I'm not saying it's perfect and I'm not saying it's easy, but, um, you know, we, 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 we have, you've heard the old saw, you know, fast, what is it? Fast, cheap, and good. Pick yeah. any two. Yeah. We actually say pick one mm. <laughs> and we're good. We're mm. not fast and we're not cheap, but we're good. And that's what we've decided. They're all, it, it, you know, any one of those positionings is legitimate. But we've decided that we're not going to be fast and we're not going to be cheap, but we're going to be good. And when it's time for that, come to us. And that gives us the room to 
be slow right. <laughs> and to invest those resources and creativity. Sounds like a nice place to work. Well, actually, on that note, there was something else I wanted to ask. When you're bringing somebody into your firm and when you're hiring them, what do you look for in an employee? Among the uh, other than the obvious things we look for, and, and I can answer this quickly because we talk about it a lot. We look for light behind the eyes. That's the way we put it. And what that means is t- it's related to curiosity. We want people who are curious about life. And it doesn't matter whether it's sports or the arts or, you know, you name it. In fact, we want, you talk about diversity, we want diversity in our people. We want people who are into the arts and people who are into sports and people who are into politics and people who are into everything because that's where the real value is. But the most important thing is that somebody is self-motivated, self-curious, and they have what we call light behind their eyes, which is that sparkle or that ability to, the desire to engage in a conversation and a discussion. And so very often in our initial interviews with people, we won't talk about the business at all. We just talk hmm. about life hmm. and what they're interested in. Because if you're, if you're reasonably intelligent and intelligent and you can, you know, write us, uh, write a, uh, a coherent paragraph, um, you're probably going to have a certain set of skills. But what we need here is people who want to want to invent. And so you have to have that curiosity. It's a prerequisite. Hmm. One of the difficulties I have found is that creatives get the shaft. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the best way to put it, right? Uh, Out of everyone I know that's highly creative and they wanted to make that their career. Many have, and that's great, but it's not as straightforward. It's a lot more difficult and there's a lot (laughs) less um, stability than if you just go be an accountant, right? Right. So. Uh, what do you recommend to the creative who wants to make it their life, feels that same joy you do, but realizes the struggles and difficulties behind it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, we get paid less than our clients do in general. People who are on our side of the business get paid less than our counterparts who work in our client companies. And the reason is because we have fun. It's more fun to be creative. And there, that's a legitimate trade-off that creatives make. It's the freedom and the fun and the and the psychological rewards that come. I was offered a job once. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. I was working on the Pizza Hut business, mm-hmm. and Pizza Hut offered me a job. Great company, right? Mm-hmm. Great future, great potential. And I just thought, I don't know if I could count pepperonis every day. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean, they really do track, right? How many pizzas did we sell last night? And I mean, it's really intense, and it has to be, but but – you get you get compensated for that because it's what it is. Whereas I chose to stay in my industry and make less money, but my job is much more rewarding. So my advice to creatives is, of course, creatives tend to be not as good at business. So if you can find a good business partner, that's great. That's a great thing. <laughs> who can who can a good guy who, who studied finance, right? That's yeah. that's ideal. But um, but recognize that we all make trade offs, and the trade offs you're making is for the joy of being creative. And I think it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And and the last kind of part on this, and I want to get back to those principles and really talk about the nuts and bolts of branding and marketing, getting back to this idea of fearfulness, or I was even thinking in terms of rejection, because any creative knows you put a lot of work into what you're doing, whether it be building your business, writing your blog post, painting your picture, and then you put it out into the world for judgment. And so- mm-hmm. I feel like in your business, perhaps, uh, you build it and hand it over to a client who is paying a lot of money and can rip it to shreds. How do you deal <laughs> with rejection and what what do you feel in terms of resiliency in your business? You tend to develop a thick skin, but I actually, I actually found a, a positive way to think about it. This was years ago. I remember sharing this with a creative director who thought it was a bunch of hooey, so you might as well. But my thought process was this. That if if my job is to is to be creative in such a way that influences people to do something, influences my clients' customers to do something, then I ought to be good enough at it to be able to influence my client to approve my work. And the extent to which I'm not is on me, not on them. So I think there there is a certain healthiness in saying if the client destroys my work for whatever reason, they may be right, first of all. They may be wrong. But instead of blaming them and getting frustrated and angry and cynical, I can say, what could I have done differently? What could, what can I learn from this so that next time I'm much more successful? And I've actually followed that 
sort of po- personal policy for the last couple of decades. And most of the time, most of the time it gets approved hmm. because I've learned many tips, tools, tactics, uh, you know, psychology, reading of people's body language. I've learned a lot about that and how to prepare. Um, and, 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 you know, it's on us to develop work that really makes sense, but I think that's a healthier way of looking at it because if otherwise you could just get battered and bloodied and re- retire, Yeah, all, all artists face this and you know, how many famous artists died broke right? and now they're geniuses, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you, that's you, no you, fun. That. No, it's not, <laughs> no, it's not fun. So you want to find uh, the happy – fortunately, my kind of creativity, the business we're in, is a business. And so there is that sort of natural thought process of if I can't sell my art, then I'm in the wrong business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, I'm glad you said that. I want to talk about the business. Tell me about your firm and tell me in, in your words with that sparkle that you mentioned that I know you have, what is it that you do? Great. Uh, my my company is called McKee Wall Working Company. We're 20 years old. We were born an advertising agency. And the reason I say that is because these days, what's an ad agency? Right. Uh, <clears throat> but that's that was our heritage. What we do is we help companies that, and we've, we've developed a shorthand for this, we help companies that are stalled, stuck, or stale to come back to life. And we do that through the marketing mindset if not through the marketing department. We distinguish between what we call big M marketing and little m marketing. Little m marketing is the marketing department or the marketing plan. Big M marketing is the marketing worldview, the marketing philosophy in which everything fits. Uh, And so whether that's uh, refashioning your brand for the marketplace, whether that's um, re-examining your product positioning, whether it's um, developing a whole new distribution mechanism, the four P's of marketing, if your listeners are familiar with that. We open the door to everything and we pull it apart and we put it back together and we give brands new life. Hmm. And that's what's so rewarding. Sometimes that's a pretty short journey for us to be able to do that. And sometimes it's a near-death experience. They're both very <laughs> rewarding. Yeah, I can imagine. And But when I think about this, and I have a, a big bias behind this idea of marketing. And I'll tell you, one of the people who helped me work through it is Seth Godin. We had him on the show. He kind of said and told me this idea of people want to be sold the dream. And and I have a quote from him. He talks about, why do people buy a $1,000 bottle of wine? Does it taste that much better than a $100 bottle of wine? No, of course not. But the experience. And so that, that started changing the way I thought about it. Because prior to, I always thought marketing was about manipulation. Or at least mm-hmm. that's your goal, right? How do I reach somebody and then convince them of whatever I'm trying to tell them? So how do you look at that aspect of marketing? Yeah, let me make it easier for you. Uh, first of all, the, the word that I've landed on that I feel most comfortable with is influence. A lot of people will use the word persuasion or what have you, but marketing doesn't always persuade. It doesn't always get you over the hump, but we should be able to influence people. Uh, but let me help you feel better about that word manipulation. Um, cause, uh, I, I, I've, I teach a college class once a semester and I talk about this very thing and I ask people, is manipulation bad? And their, their universal first response is yes. And I say, wait a minute, time out. When a potter manipulates clay, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Oh, it's a good thing. When a physical therapist manipulates a patient's muscles, is it a bad thing or a good thing? So the concept of manipulation is is usually thought of in a pejorative way because that's how the word is usually used. But technically speaking, all manipulation is is trying to shape something. And if you do it ethically, which uh, we could get into, of course we believe in in, in ethics, you can look at it in a different way. When a teacher, a third grade teacher, puts a gold star at the top of Junior's math quiz, is that not manipulation? But would anybody say that that's a bad thing? You know what I'm saying? I do, but... but one of the things that I'm curious about then is this is the brand assuming that the way they're manipulating people is for the better as opposed to for the business. Well, yes and no, but the two meet. The two are ultimately the same track, and, okay. I, and I'll explain why. Okay, great. Because one, any brand or business that steps outside the bounds of ethics is not going to be your brand or, or business for very long, especially these days when everybody's a publisher in the age of online reviews and social media. Um, but two, profit, capitalism, if you want to look at it that way, 
profit is the measure of how well you're meeting the needs of people in the marketplace. And so there's a natural uh, series of market pressures that lead companies to not overpromise, not underpromise, that lead companies to position themselves in the best possible light within reason. A, a good example is when I, I don't know if you're married, you go out on you, you get, get married. Let's, let's just take the example of let's take the example of going on a job interview. Okay, mm-hmm. when you go on a job interview, you're not going to roll out of bed and walk into the interview. You're going to comb your hair and brush your teeth and put on your best suit. Well, is that really you? Well, yeah, it's really you. Is that really you 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, but there's sort of an understanding, you know, and the same thing would go for a first date. Same thing is true in marketing and advertising. Companies um, put on their best suits and comb their hair and brush their teeth when they go out to the world. And people understand that. And I, I even make the point that I think advertising is a lot less dangerous than journalism. Actually, advertising is less dangerous than education because uh, the, the joke in our business is what's the difference between an advertiser and a journalist? And it is that the advertiser is at least honest about the fact that he's trying to manipulate you. <laughs> uh, and so, but, but there's truth to that because as a consumer, when you see an ad on television, on the internet, wherever else, you know it's an ad and you can figuratively put up your defenses and filter it through that context. Mm-hmm. When you see a news story or when you're a uh, ninth grader, in, in history class, that filter isn't up. That's why it's dangerous because the person on the other end of that filter, if they have bad intent, can manipulate you in such a way that um, it, it's not good. And so this whole concept of manipulation is not limited to the world of advertising and marketing. It's, it's all around us in the world of human interrelationships and we have to be careful all the way around. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm, I'm very comfortable with what we do for a living because People see us coming. We don't say anything that isn't true. And we always try to act in the best interest of the consumer because that is the best interest of the company. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Support for today's show comes from Health IQ. Health IQ believes that the best way to improve the health of the world is to celebrate the health conscious through social and financial rewards. So, They use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people, including runners, cyclists, strength trainers, vegans, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ. Like saving money by being a good driver, Health IQ gets you lower rates on life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. After all, Physically active people have a 34% lower risk of all-cause mortality, 56% lower risk of heart disease, and 22% decrease in cancer mortality compared to people who remain inactive. All right, so listen up. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com SPP or mention the promo code SPP when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Again, that's healthiq.com slash SPP to get your free quote. And now back to the episode. So you're saying that the real job of marketing or perhaps your approach to it, which is fine, is really to take the product or service that they already offer and have been offering and just refresh it to a a way to reach the people that they think will be best served. No more, no less. Yes, that's a way of putting it. Or or I might just get a little bit more technical with it. And that Mm -hmm. is that marketing fundamentally is finding out what people need or want and providing it to them. So the extent to which our client's product or service does not meet the needs or the wants of their customer is the extent to which we need to change it. Mm. So the consumer really is in the driver's seat at all times. And actually that's one of the roles we play. We, we, and we tell our clients this, you know, they can't, they can't help but operate from the company's perspective because it's who they are. And we say, we're going to come in and we're going to represent the customer. And together, we're going we're gonna to noodle on this thing. And that's one of the reasons they hire us, because they want us to represent, understand, empathize with, bring to the table the interests of the consumer. I see. And I'm just, I think the, the thing I'm trying to say most overall is everybody's interests are fundamentally aligned. They really are, because you could take, you can give somebody a haircut short term, but you're not going to be around for very long. So the companies that make it long-term, that have truly successful brands over the long run, have to be faithful, loyal, 
to the consumer. Sure. It's my belief. Yeah. One of the things I'm wondering is what happens if you're approached by a company that isn't doing anything technically or even ethically wrong, but you just don't agree with them. So in my mind, and we can, I'm sure, I mean, hey, we can do this. I own the show, right? Like say it was Pizza Hut, okay? And you don't yeah. have to use them as an example, but I'm a big believer in healthy food. I think that fast food and a lot of that contributes to obesity and diabetes and uh, all these things. And if they came and said, we need to convince people to buy the super ultra pizza with cheese stuffed <laughs> everywhere. Like, yes, people want that because people want cheese, but should you do it? And should you help them manipulate people to buy it? A uh, lot of questions in there. Yeah, ultimately, sorry. <laughs> ultimately, well, ultimately you have to draw your own line. Okay. I, uh, we draw the line at the addictive categories for sure. So we don't do tobacco, alcohol, or gambling of any sort, lotteries included. In other cases, we don't do politics either. The reason we don't do politics is simply because we have a very diverse staff and uh, I don't yeah. want to make I don't want to make anybody work on a brand that they're uncomfortable selling. But th there comes a point where you could you could make the case that you go to the supermarket and there's nothing in there. That's true. You know, if, if you know Doritos or even even the pre-chopped lettuce, right? It's a vegetable. Yeah, but it's in a petroleum-based bag. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you could argue yourself out of doing anything. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, you just have to draw the line where you're comfortable drawing it. In the case of Pizza Hut, you know, we do, there is a problem with obesity in America, but there is also we had this we had this debate about having bite-sized candies on our on our reception desk <laughs> in the front of the office. It was the same argument. <laughs> people really need more candy. My perspective was, people are free moral agents; they can decide whether they want a piece of candy or not. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and, and you also have to, it's easy for people who are not in our industry to overstate our powers of manipulation. Not to hone in on this. And I appreciate the, the conversation here, but it's like, if you were so good and if that's even possible that people didn't actually want candy when they walked into your office, but then they ate it because of the fantastic presentation that would yeah. be manipulation. And therefore they got something they didn't even really want or need. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Okay. And wouldn't it be an it would be a, it would be an awful world in which to live if we had that much power. Okay. Um, in fact, we wring our hands every day because our uh, we as an industry because we don't have, you know, greater ability to influence how people think. Um, would that it from an from an industry standpoint, would that it would be that easy? As a human being, thank God it isn't. Right. <laughs> uh, because people are, but you know that gets into the ethical questions of do you advertised to children. Okay. That's a different question mm. because children don't have the same defenses that a rational, um, ad adult does in a, in a consumer society like ours. It also gets into ethical questions. Like, do you use our, you know, Western uh, tightly honed abilities to influence how people think, uh, in a third world country? Mm -hmm. You know, those are, those are ethical questions that don't have clear, lines of demarcation until you get into the actual specifics of a specific situation. But they're the right questions to ask. And, and we've, we we are comfortably on, on, on this side of the thick black line, we believe by staying away from the, the addictive categories. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'm wondering. If we could go back to those first principles, because yeah. a lot of people that, I mean, a lot of people that listen to the show are creatives, right? Whether that be business creatives in terms of entrepreneurs or the painters and the photographers and the bloggers and everything that everyone can benefit from. What are these principles? Okay. They're, they're going to sound very obvious like everything does, but the critical aspect of the principles is you have to do them in the right order. So l let me start with principle four and work backwards. Cause I think this will make sense. The, in the fourth phase of, of a power branding process, it's when you decide the, 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 the how, where, and the when, of your of how you're going to market. So in the case of an ad campaign, it's what do the ads say? Where do we place them? How much money do we spend? Are we on social media or not? All those myriad thousands of questions that are changing every day. That's what you do at the fourth phase of the process. And you can't most of the time when companies stumble, it's because they're having arguments at that phase and they haven't gone through the top three. <laughs> so you don't worry about the 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 how, where, and when until the end. The third phase is the what, and that is, okay, before we figure out how to go to market, 
what are we going to market with? What are we? Who are we? What are we? What is our positioning? How are we differentiated from the competition? What is our value proposition? Those are the questions that you ask at the third phase. But you can't even really ask those until you back up to the second phase, which is the who. And that is, well, who are we trying to reach? We can't be all things to all people. Um, in fact, the only category that where I think you need more than 50% market share is politics, and that's on one day of the year. <laughs> you, have, you have to get 51% market share. In most other categories, you can do just fine with 23 or 18 or 7 or 2% market share. Who are those people? And you can't really answer that until you, you solve for the first principle, which is why are we even doing this? Mm. So to work backwards, if you, if you think about the journalist six, which is what I just articulated, first question you have to answer is why? Second is who? The third is what? And then the fourth is how, when, and where? That is power branding in a nutshell. That's the introduction to the book, and that's, that's how it goes. And so if your why is I want to be an independent artist that answers to no one, okay, um, there's correlations that go with that, right? In terms of, um, you know, likelihood how much money you're going to make and those sorts of things versus if your why is I want to do a startup and, um, cash out in five years by going public. That's a very different why hmm. both legitimate, just different. So the, the first place we always start with our clients is why are we here? And, and this, this relates to Simon Sinek. It's different because when he says no one cares what you do, they care why you do it. Mm -hmm. He's really talking about in our construct, it's it's more related to the what, but it's but it's all, you know, we're we're approaching the elephant of truth from a different angle is all, sure. that he you know why are you, you know, am I in business just to make money? No, of course not. I I have my own why. You have your own why. It's really important to to get settled on that um, before you move on because based on your why the question of who gets answered. So if my why is because I want to change the world by being president of the United States, then I got to find a way to get 51%. Mm. And that defines my who. But if my why is I want to sell one painting a year, right, for $30,000, uh, my who is going to be that half of 1% of art collectors, you know, for example, uh, and so there's a principle in the second phase, which is your who has to be as narrow as possible, but as broad as necessary. And as narrow as possible means because you really want to get to know them and understand them so that so that you can ring their bell. And as broad as necessary is driven entirely by, by what your why is. As broad as necessary for what? To accomplish my why. Mm. And that's why these things have to go in the proper order. What's your why? Who's your who? And then based on who your who is, okay, what's going to ring their bell? What is it? that is going to get them to do a transaction with me, if, if, whether that's voting for me or buying my product or service. And that there's a whole suite of principles into you know, positioning and differentiation and relevance and those sorts of things. And when you get through those three phases, why am I doing this? Whose bell do I need to ring? What do I need to um, say or do to ring their bell? Then you go to the how, when, and where. And that's when you say, if I'm an artist that wants to sell one painting for $30,000 a year, well, I'm not going to go seek venture capital, you know? Mm. I might seek a patron, <laughs> but not venture capital. Whereas if I want to do a startup and exit in five years, then I might be justified in seeking venture. And all those executional questions get answered at that stage. The yeah. problem most companies have is they, they go to stage four instead of walking deliberately through the first three. You know what I found most interesting about that is when you start with your why – you alluded to it being your why. Like, I'm an artist. I want to make a living not answering to anyone. Or I want to start a company to just put something into the world, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And where I find that differs from some advice is people say, no, you have to start with what the customers want. Right? No. And so tell us about that. Yeah, no, that's phase two. Because what do the customers want? Well, who are the customers? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, um, some customers wanted Hillary Clinton and some customers wanted Donald Trump. Those are pretty different customers. So there is no, there is no answer to the question, what, what do the customers want? Because it's too big. It's, the, the question is really, what do my customers want? Mm -hmm. Well, that depends on, well, who are your customers? Well, it depends on what you want to be. So, you know, m my, my goal when we started this, I mean, 
there's a number of aspects to my why, but one of my whys was I wanted to be a world-class, world-respected firm, which meant that my customers would be people who are seeking those things out, which meant that my customers would not be the local car dealer down the street. Right. So I don't care what they think about me. I don't care if they think I'm expensive and not worth the price because they're not my customers. But I, I care deeply what that small fraction of clients who might hire me think. And so what you said is not not true. It's just that it's it's not the first thing because you can't be all things to all people. So you have to decide what thing you're going to be to what people. And And it's okay to start with your own ambitions. You have to. You have to. And I, I would I would actually not limit it to the word ambitions because that can mean a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But you must start with who you are or else you could find yourself in a very unsatisfying midlife crisis or <laughs> other situation. Or quarter life crisis. It or could be life, about right. 25 years old when that happens. I mean, I'm just it, saying. <laughs> it really could be. When I was offered the job for uh, with Pizza Hut, I was in my young 20s. Yeah. And I saw the career path, you know, being transferred all over the world and ultimately becoming the CEO of a Fortune, you know, 500 corporation. Mm-hmm. But I, but I counted the cost of that, and I said, that's, that's not who I am. That's not what I want. And so I turned it down. It was actually a very easy decision for me. So you, you can't help but start with your why. Otherwise, people find themselves in dead end jobs, mm-hmm. uh, where they're pulling their hair out, or they have a nervous breakdown, or mm-hmm. any number of things. Yeah. Now, we, we've been talking so far a little bit about, you know, sort of the entrepreneur, the solopreneur. Sure, right. But it's it's true if you're the CEO of a large corporation, you still – it still has to align with your values, your lifestyle, your desires, your heart. And if it doesn't, it's a good sign that you should be doing something else. I'm sure you've gone through an exercise with clients on helping them figure out their why. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. What is your recommendation on that? That is probably, I mean, to be all honest, that that's why we started this podcast was to find our why. Ah. It's a big struggle for so many people. And I can't say I've completely figured mine out either. How do we do it? Or what, yeah. how do you guide companies even? It's, uh, it's, it's easier than you might think because we're never starting from scratch. So if you're, if you're, and we, we say this to our clients, if you're in business, if you've been in business for any length of time, you're obviously doing something right. Um, you might be, you might've lost your way. You might've, you know, stumbled or gotten stuck, but obviously you're doing something right. Most of the time, the benefit of what we do for our clients is help them rediscover their why or, or hone their why or, um, turn it over and look at it in an, in a new way. We we were working with a, a company recently. It was an international tutoring franchise. Okay. So their why is somewhat straightforward. If you're a tutoring company, you know, you kind of know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. It can't be too, but we help them unearth, and that's the word we used. We help them unearth the core essence of the why, and it injected, like a volcano, it injected the company with enthusiasm and excitement and new passion, but it was their why all along. We just brought in as objective third-party outsiders who do this for a living. We know where to, we know how to turn the rocks over, we know where to get you to look and we know how to discover it. And I don't know if there's ever been a time where we've discovered what amounts to a company's why that caused them to take a 180 or a 90 degree turn. It's usually they take a five degree turn or a 10 degree turn or maybe a 20 degree turn or maybe they're doing a 20 degree return. But most of the time it's there. And I think that's probably true with individuals as well. You know, it's like when you go see a shrink, they don't do any talking. You talk yourself and you solve your own problems because they're just there to listen. Mm-hmm. We've yeah. been called mark- we've been called marketing shrinks before. Okay, Steve, <laughs> you took the words actually the next question out of my mouth, which because I, I'm a certified coach, we do a lot in terms of psychology and coaching, and and I love that field. And what you were describing to me, I'm thinking, Steve, you're a coach. <laughs> That's what you are. You're a, a business coach that allows them to uncover their thing. But I think you probably then go, okay, now that this is your thing, here's how we make it come to life, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and that, that's what a good to- coach would do, right? Is, mm-hmm. okay, this, you want to achieve a gold medal in this sport in the Olympics? Here's what we need to do to get there. So I think I cut you off, but it, was there anything else on that kind of uncovering your why or helping others uncover their why there? No, other than the fact that it's usually already there. And you just have to have the people asking the right questions. In the right context with the right ability to 
look up before you look down, as we like to say, which is get your nose out of the book, get your face out of the computer, uh, you know, out of the day to day and stare at the clouds, <laughs> give, give people room to do that. And we have, you know, over the course of 20 years, we've developed a magnificent way of of helping our client companies do just that. Sure. Let's talk about, I know in power branding, which a lot of this, this whole conversation is kind of based in, but you tell a number of stories and strategies used by everything from small, but also really large companies that I think are applicable. And I'm wondering if you feel there are any that stick out to you as really a, a gold standard of a, a strategy or a process, a company walk through that, um, is, is beneficial to others perhaps listening to the show. Yeah, there's sort of this overarching, gigantic fact that many companies are oblivious to or ignore, and that is that people do not make rational decisions. We call it the fallacy of rationality. What the fallacy of rationality says is that if you present the right information to people in the right logical argumentative form, much like a lawyer would do in a courtroom, they will come to the right conclusion and they will buy your product and service. Sorry, not how it works. <laughs> it's not even how it works in a courtroom, right? If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, it's not how it works in a courtroom. We are a, we are a, we are a combination of rational and non-rational elements and aspects as human beings. And in fact, we know so little, the, the scientists, we know so little, uh, we human beings, about how we really work. But science is beginning to discover that so many of our decisions are made at the non-rational, call it subconscious or gut level. And those are not um, invalid. They're actually in many ways more valid. Uh, scientists are su suggesting that our gut level is really things we know in our subconscious that our conscious hasn't processed yet, but they're nevertheless true. Hmm. And the best marketers and advertisers recognize that. And let me give you a very simple, straightforward example that everybody will understand. If McDonald's, and they were one of the first, McDonald's and Coca-Cola, and this is, this is all around the 1960s, 1970s Mad Men era when, when the creative revolution uh, came to be. They were one of the first to realize this. If McDonald's went out and said that we have the best French fries in the world, some people would agree with that and some people would disagree with that. It's a statement of, of fact that's, provable or disprovable, in this case, pretty much by your own taste buds. <laughs> they, they probably could have done a survey, you know, and said that 63% of people think we have the best French fries in the world. Okay, whatever, fine. They didn't do that. Instead, they showed a wonderful scene of a father and a son sitting in a McDonald's, having a moment over a box of French fries. And they said nothing. They connected with us at the emotional subconscious level, so much to the point where, and they've done it for so long, that when I had children and I had my son and he and we went to his soccer game. After his soccer game, we went to McDonald's because that's what fathers and sons are supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't even like McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Coca Cola did the same thing with the Hilltop advertiser. And if you if if your listeners are too young, they should Google it. Um, Coca Cola Hilltop. I'd like to teach the world to sing. It was during the hippie generation, the Vietnam War, where there was a bunch of strife in the world, like there is today. It's appealing to people through the window, not through the door. And the window is their emotions. The window is their feelings, because that's where we make all of our decisions. If if advertisers would recognize that one thing, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is it is it is a pretty straightforward principle that you quit trying to argue people into your product or service, and instead romance them into it, attract them into it. Mm -hmm. New research has shown that the single most powerful. Uh, or, or most telling component of whether or not an ad will work is the amount of affection it creates. That's it. Not the compellingness of its argument, but the amount of affection it creates. Wow. Would that our politicians would listen to us. Imagine you're a small business owner or an entrepreneur, solopreneur, whatever, and you might not have the $100 million marketing budget to go buy TV commercials or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I'm sure you deal with companies like this, obviously not the super small, but, you know, people that don't have, I'd imagine, seven figure plus marketing spends. What do you advise them to do when that large scale, I'm going to shape the way people view us in their, you know, in, on TV uh -huh. and all this when that's unavailable? All right. How about you got a reader board out in front of your auto mechanic shop mm. instead of advertising your brake special? Put something charming on there. There's a there's a stone company uh, that has a location where I live off of the interstate. They have a reader board, very small company, and they put stuff up there like 
maybe you should take your wife for granted. Okay. It's a silly pun. Granted, <laughs> you're in. Yeah. It's a silly pun. <laughs> but on your way to work in the traffic jam, gives you a little smile. And they do that repeatedly over and over again, year after year after year, to the point where when you're doing a kitchen remodel, you like them. Mm. You like them. You don't know how much it costs. You don't know if you can afford them. But you like them, and there's a certain amount of trust there, which is a whole other um, discussion because humor is a great way to build trust. But that's if you have as, as simple as a reader board, or I, I'll give you another example. There's a little tiny lawn service firm that hits me up twice a year with a letter, right? Wanting to do my yard. They got no money, but the letter is handwritten. It's got a nice thought in it. It's not a sales piece. It's a relationship building piece. And no, I don't curl up in bed at night with the letter under my <laughs> pillow, right? But it's when I see it, it's just a little tiny tiny relationship builder. And for a service like that, that's all you need. Well, Steve, I have to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I think you just dropped wisdom after wisdom on us. And I know that it will resonate for all the creatives and all the the people working and, and thinking about that side hustle or that CEO running his company. And so I really appreciate it. I know we mentioned it already, but the two books, Power Branding and When Growth Stalls, and I wanted to just give you a minute and direct our listeners, because you write a lot. You have a, a great column. So if you could tell people where you are and how to find you, that would be great. Yeah, the name of the company is McKee Wallwork. That's W-A-L-L-W-O-R-K. So McKeeWallwork.com. Or to make it easy, if you go to stevemckee.com, you'll get to the same place. And the books are there. We do publish a great deal. There's a lot of information there. And if you want to do sort of a mini tutorial on branding, marketing, or business, it's a great place to start. I absolutely do. That's where I'm going. Well, Steve, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to connecting with you soon. I'll shoot over an email. Likewise, it's a blast. All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve McKee. Steve's book, Power Branding, Leveraging the Success of the World's Best Brands, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase the book through Amazon, please make sure to do so through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. All purchases you make using the link come at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps out the show. If you'd like other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can sign up for the newsletter over there. We've got some great interviews coming up and we will see you all next episode. 